Welcome to the Garden Weekly Bible Study on the Book of Hebrews. My name is Joel Fisher. I'm a defender of Christianity and a student of Scripture, and I'm here to help you go deeper in your faith by walking through Scripture with you. You'll notice that we are not actually in the Book of Hebrews. Uh, Once again, we are going deeper into one of the quotes from the Book of Hebrews, chapter 1, which is uh, coming from 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. So we are going to be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 17, and I've titled this study, The King is Coming, and we'll find out why as we go through this study. Um, So this is coming from Hebrews 1.5, which is quoting a central verse, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. So in context, in this passage, God is making a covenant with David. David wants to make God a beautiful temple, but God tells David that he is not allowed to. Then God lays out a counteroffer of sorts, a covenant of eternal blessing for Israel and an an eternal line on the throne. So let's take a look at this covenant. The covenant with David, God's covenant with David, often called the Davidic covenant, is pretty central to scripture. I found an article called The Covenant of Grant in the Old Testament and in the Ancient Near East, which is a mouthful. But the author, uh, as I was studying this passage, tells us that there are two distinct kinds of covenants, both in the Old Testament and in the Ancient Near East. There are treaties or vassal treaties in which a more powerful nation or king takes another weaker nation or king and uh, uh, grants them some blessings and favor and land. And then there's another kind called the Royal Grant Covenant, in which the more powerful king or nation just simply grants something to the weaker one without the same kinds of curses. So the Mosaic Covenant is an example of the Vassal Treaty Covenant. And it's full of uh, warnings and curses for what will happen to Israel if they break the terms of this covenant. In Leviticus and Deuteronomy, you can just see uh, chapters that are laid out, laying out curses for what will happen to Israel if they don't hold up their end of the agreement, if they don't hold up to their terms of the covenant. But this passage that lays out the Davidic covenant has nothing like that. It's full of nothing but blessing. And I was confused at first. I was wondering why this is actually a covenant because it didn't look like the Mosaic Covenant. But this article showed how it's a distinct, it is a covenant, but it's a distinct kind of covenant. And really it's more like the Abrahamic covenant laid out in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, where God is simply granting or giving a blessing to a person without the same kinds of warnings and curses that can be laid upon that person if they fail to hold up to their terms. So there, um, it's not quite unilateral. It is, it is a unilateral covenant of blessing in that there are no curses, but there are requirements to receive that blessing into the future. There are some later reflections like Psalm uh, 132 chapter uh, verses 11 and 12 but there are no curses that are attached for faithlessness to the covenant so as we'll see while the blessing may be conditional temporarily there is an eternal component 
to the covenant that is guaranteed by God and that is not conditional. And I'll say that again. So there's a conditional component to this covenant in which the blessings may be removed temporarily, but there is also an eternal component to this covenant that is guaranteed by God and it is not conditional. So we're going to start through this passage, verses 1 through 3, titled David Seeks to Build a Temple. So the timeline of this seems a little odd. When the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. I'm going to underline that. Um, This seems strange considering that it wasn't until very late in David's reign that he actually did find this rest from his surrounding enemies. He was at war for a, a long period of time, but this place in scripture, 2 Samuel 7, indicates that we're still in the middle of David's reign. And in fact, right after this chapter, David is going to go and fight many more enemies. So there's two possibilities. One is that the chapter is arranged thematically instead of chronologically. So we're seeing later into David's life, but the author is telling us about it earlier so that we know about this covenant um, as we go into the rest of the story. Um, He's continuing the story of the ark in chapter six. Now we're talking about the temple and where the ark is going to rest, even though it's skipping a few decades. It could be wrong. Um, It could also be option B is just that there's a brief period of peace and that's what this is talking about. Um, It seems to be a little bit stronger than that. He's given, the Lord has given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. It seems to be a prolonged period of rest. Either way is possible. Um, and I'll leave it up to you, which which you prefer. So whatever the chronology is, David has rest from his enemies. I'm going to circle that, box that a couple more times, because that is a key word of this passage and of Hebrews. We're going to see that again as we go back into the book of Hebrews, especially in chapters 3 and 4. Um, it occurs 11 times. That key word rest occurs 11 times in those two chapters. So David remarks to his court prophet, Nathan, that he dwells in a house of cedar. It's another key word for this passage is dwells. David is dwelling in a house of cedar, but the ark of God is dwelling in a tent. And as we'll see, David's words about the ark of God dwelling in a tent seem to be synonymous in David's mind with God himself dwelling in that tent. Nathan sees nothing wrong with the idea of building God a beautiful temple, so he agrees. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and God denies it. God refuses the temple, at least from David, for now. So God is not pleased with the presumption that God can tell, that David can tell God where he ought to dwell. In verse 5, God tells Nathan uh, to tell David. Um, Let me find it here. So here's the dwelling again. Tell my servant, David, I passed it right there. Um, Tell my servant, David. This is a reminder of who is the true king of Israel. David may be the human king, But God is its true king. David is a servant. 
there was never intended or that's probably too strong of words. It was never the ideal for there to be a human king of Israel. God was its true king, and that's why God appointed judges. Uh, They were not kings. They were leaders among men who served God. And still, even in this, David is a servant. God is the true king of Israel. The last instruction from God on his dwelling place is that he should dwell in a tabernacle, right? So the last thing that God had said to the people of Israel is that I will dwell in this tent. It should be exactly like this. This is how to build it. And that's the dwelling place that he decided. And he is not pleased with the presumption of David, even though it's, you know, well-meaning. David meant well, but he's not pleased with the presumption that David can choose where God lives, his dwelling place. Um, We should also note, of course, that as Stephen says in his speech before the Jewish leaders in Acts 7, and as Solomon tells us when he christens the temple in 1 Kings 8, the heavens and the earth are God's dwelling place, not any particular tent or building. But the uh, focal point of his manifest presence is where the Ark of the Covenant is, where the Ark of God is, where in the tabernacle and later in Solomon's reign in the temple. But God gets to decide who builds his temple. And we learn elsewhere that David cannot build a temple because he had to fight for such a long time and shed too much blood. Um, and in that way, he seemed to have been tainted. And that's in 1 Kings 5.3 and 1 Chronicles 22.8. So God has not asked for a temple, but David the servant has presumed too much of God, his king. God isn't offended. He understands David's heart was in the right place. So while he refuses his uh, David to build him a temple, God will honor David in a different way. Here's 1 Kings 8. I forgot that I had put this one in there. This is Solomon at the christening of the temple. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less the house that I have built. So now we move to the next section here, 2 Samuel 8. And this is where God reminds David of his past. So we're going to see past, and then he is going to move to talk about David's future. Again, we have the reminder that David is a servant Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the greatest ones, the great ones on the earth. Great name, name of the great ones on the earth. So more keywords there. So God reminds David of his past. David may be king of Israel now, but the I is emphatic. I took you from the pasture. Who did David build himself into a king? Did David earn it? Did David um, inherit it? Did David cause it to happen? No. The Lord of hosts is the one who caused David to become king. And for that reason, David is his servant. He is a delegated authority. When David was in the pasture tending sheep, God was with him. When David slew Goliath, God was with him. 
When David ran for his life from Saul, hiding in caves and scrapping for food, God was with him. And when David was crowned Israel's king, God was with him. David's life is one of service to God, but God has never abandoned his servant. God will make for him a great name. God will honor David for his faithful service with a great name. A name, as we've seen in earlier studies of Hebrews, is important in Scripture. God's name is a symbol for his glory and his presence. Deuteronomy 12.15 for one of many, many examples. We can look at Deuteronomy 12.5 here. You shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. So putting his name and making his habitation are synonymous in this passage. His very presence and his name are synonymous. It's a symbol of glory and presence. It's a symbol of David's glory, his fame and majesty becoming great. But it is still a delegated glory. It's not David who is making for himself a great name. Once again, this I is emphatic. I will make for you a great name. David didn't earn glory through his own actions, but by being a servant. And this is where I turn to challenge you and myself. Do I write these words, uh, the Garden Weekly, for glory? Do I make these videos for glory, podcasts? Or do I do it to be a servant? When you go to your job, do you do it as an act of service to God or as a means to gain your own glory? David is an example for us. Whenever he tried to take what he wanted, such as Bathsheba, the consequences were severe. But when he was a servant of the Most High God, that is when he was glorified. And his descendant, Jesus, followed the same pattern. Jesus' glorification is not because of his own majesty. And Jesus did have a claim to majesty. He was God in flesh. But because of Jesus' humility and service to a mankind that rejected and crucified him, that is why he was glorified. It is through humility that we receive true glory, not of our own making. So then we push forward. Now God moves from the past, from the reminder of the past, into the future. God says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all of your enemies. In the course of this covenant, God makes ten promises which should remind us of the ten words that God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. These are often called the Ten Commandments. Here God speaks another ten words, promising blessing for David, Israel, and David's descendants. In these verses, we turn from David himself to God's people, Israel. I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them, another key word so that they may dwell, there's that word again, and be disturbed no more. Violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges, and I will give you 
rest. There's that word popping up again. So God promises Israel that they will no longer face war as they have. David has fought wars for his whole life to establish Israel's claim to the land and to fight back their enemies. God promises that these wars will come to an end. And come to an end, they do. Solomon's reign is a period of great peace. His son, you know, um, his son Solomon, it's a period of great peace, which allows Israel to rest and Solomon to build a temple for God in that peace. God elsewhere shows that he refuses David's request to build a temple because of David's um, the blood that David has had to shed. But Solomon is not the same way. He doesn't have to go fight all of these wars. And in that time of peace, he is able to build the temple of God. But Solomon's peace does not last. Later, kings would fight many battles and wars, and that ends in the sacking of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple, and the children of God going into exile. How can we understand that event in light of this covenant? We'll see more below, but we have, in fact, already discussed the answer. This covenant is not unconditional in the near term. The condition for Israel being free from their enemies, as with other parts of this covenant, is faithfulness to the Lord. There are no curses attached to the the covenant, but that doesn't mean that the blessings are unconditional. But, as I also said, part of the covenant is unconditional. This covenant functions just like so many other prophecies in the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus is the fulfillment, not just of explicit prophecy, but of all the shadows and types in the law, prophets, and writings. What is the great hope of mankind? To return to the Garden of Eden. The promised land is a type of Eden. It's a home for the people of God. So when God speaks here of Israel being planted and facing no more war, we are reminded of the garden, which was planted in Eden, which is in Genesis 2.8, and it's the same Hebrew word that's used. The promised land and Israel's freedom from war is a type and a shadow of the ultimate promise of humanity's return to Eden, led by the truly human one, the one who is the ultimate human, David's descendant, Jesus of Nazareth. So now we move forward into the final part of this study, where God promises a lineage. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. Very similar to a dwelling. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body and establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. There's the quote from Hebrews 1.5. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. 
and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Okay. So now we move to the second part of the promise. He promises a quote-unquote house to David. So this is an inversion of David's living in his house in verse 1. See verse 1. And desiring to make God a house in verse 2. God has rejected David's desire, but now promises to build David's to build David's house. So God says, No, you will not build me a house, but I will build you a house. This is a play on words. God isn't going to build a bigger and a better palace for David. He is going to build a lineage. Think of it like the quote-unquote house of David being him, his wife, his children, their children. That is the house of David, not his literal palace, but a dynasty. Then God promises an offspring. I will raise up your offspring after you. This offspring will have his kingdom established. He will build a house for Yahweh God. He will have his throne established forever. He will be adopted by God, an inheritor of the kingdom. When the offspring sins, David's dynasty won't be like Saul's and be revoked. God promises that David's dynasty will be eternal. Fulfillment of this prophecy can be seen first in Solomon, David's biological son. From Bathsheba. Solomon's reign was a period of great peace and prosperity for Israel. Solomon built a great and beautiful temple for Yahweh God. Solomon did sin and sin greatly. He abandoned God, he worshiped idols. But God did not abandon David's line, and it continued for several more centuries, and it fell in as it fell into deep debauchery. And eventually Jerusalem was burned and Israel was exiled. So does the fact that Israel was exiled and David's line removed from the throne mean that the prophecy failed, or worse, that God lied? And this is where we come to the conditional part of the prophecy. In Solomon's prayer of dedication, as we already saw, he says, oh, no, this is a different verse, a little bit later. So in Solomon's prayer of dedication, he says, Now therefore, O God, O Lord, God of Israel, Keep for your servant David, my father, what you promised him, saying, You shall not lack a man to sit before me on the throne of Israel. So this is very, very similar to what we just read, where God promises an eternal throne. But he appends something else to it. If only your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me as you have walked before me. So there's the condition. It requires that David's descendants serve Yahweh. As long as God is a father to them, they will be sons to God. But in another sense, this prophecy is eternal. It declares that David's dynasty will be forever. Circle in a couple more colors. How is that possible? If the promise is conditional and David's descendants fail and are removed from the throne, 
Well, that's because we need a true human one, one who is the ultimate human, the one who will pass every test unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Abraham, unlike Moses, and unlike David. God himself is the guarantee of this promise. The word will become flesh as a descendant of David to fulfill this. And the author of Hebrews sees this passage as fulfilled in Jesus in Hebrews 1.5. But when talking about Jesus as the true descendant of David, it does raise the question of how we should understand the passage about the son committing iniquity. I will discipline him with the rods of men, with the stripes of the son of men. How can we understand the passage about the son committing iniquity if this is about Jesus? Well, this is fairly simple to resolve. The passage about iniquity is a promise about how God will handle David's descendants when they sin. It doesn't have to apply to Jesus, right? This is a double fulfillment promise. There is a temporal, in-time part of this promise that is conditional and applies to Solomon and David's descendants from Solomon. But there's also an eternal component to this covenant that applies to the ultimate true human who will not sin. So the passage about iniquity is a promise about how God will handle David's descendants when they sin. If Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the hope of this passage, a perfect descendant who is worthy to be an eternal king of an eternal kingdom, then this part of it, he will not commit iniquity, so he will not be disciplined. The sin of David's descendants will not threaten that ultimate hope. That's what this section is talking about. When when David's descendants commit sin, the Davidic line, the ultimate hope of Jesus, still remains. That part is guaranteed by God, even if they're removed from the throne because they are no longer sons of God because they have abandoned him. And so they no longer receive the blessing. Even if there aren't curses, they no longer receive the blessing. The ultimate hope of this passage is guaranteed by God and will will happen. Nothing can revoke it. Paul also riffs on this passage in an interesting way. He writes in 2 Corinthians 6, 16 and 18. I'm skipping a little bit, but should give the sense of the passage. For we are the temple of the living God, as God said, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. In Jesus, and through the salvation he brought us, we are adopted into the family and sonship of God. Therefore, the sonship that Jesus has, the inheritance that he has, is ours too. In Jesus, we are the descendants of David and the inheritors of the promise of an eternal kingdom and ultimate rest, with no more violence, no more war. If you are in Christ, you too are an inheritor of the return to Eden. So, what have we learned from this passage? Number one, God is king and chooses his servants. God chose David. God chose to exalt David. David didn't exalt himself, and that ties in with number two, that humility is the path to exaltation. It is because David humbled himself before God and repeatedly did so over the course of his reign that God elevated him 
And we see the same thing in Jesus. It's because of Jesus's choice of humility. Despite being God in flesh, he chose humility. And we can see that in Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, that it is because of the, the, um, the son was made flesh, despite being the very stamp of the father, the son sits at the right hand of God because of his works, because of his path of humility that led to the cross. Number three, God's people have a future kingdom guaranteed by God. Nothing that we do can stop. Nothing that any human can do can stop the guarantee of the future kingdom that is coming for those who are in Christ. And number four, Jesus, and by extension, his people, those who are in him, those who trust in him, those who have made him Lord, are the fulfillment of the Davidic promise for true sons and daughters that will rule forever. We are not merely going to be servant, well, we are going to be servants of the Most High forever, but we are not going to exist in the same way that we do now. We are called to rule, to subdue the earth. And though we abandon that in Adam and through our own sins, because of our sins, we died. And every every person has died, died in relationship to God. But the Davidic promise is that those who place their trust in God will rule forever. The promise of Genesis 1 will come back around. That is what 2 Samuel 7 is all about. So thank you for being here with me. Thank you for watching or listening. The Garden Weekly is a weekly newsletter and ministry that helps you find Christian videos, podcasts, and articles from around the internet that will deepen your understanding of scripture, God, and the world around us. If you'd like to subscribe to that newsletter, you can go to thegardenweekly.com. The link will be in the description. And if you enjoyed this video or this podcast, hit the thumbs up, subscribe, Go on iTunes and review the podcast. It would be greatly appreciated. Thank you all for being here with me, and I will see you next time.